Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me busting through and living life full out get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail hey everybody yeah tom kiernan neil jingar joining me here today why okay flashback flashback 16 years ago we started the dr pat show three years later we were all over the united states with the go green expo and back then if you remember probably you don't One of the most important things we talked about in the talk I did on 50 Shades of Green was the wind. Fast forward to where we are today, and I got to tell you, if it wasn't for people like Tom and Neil, we would not be having this conversation today. But here's the thing I felt then, and I feel it now. Wind builds the future for America. Wind energy. Think about this. Wind energy. Tom, Neil, it's great to have you here today. Well, Pat, great to be with you. Man, those are some you, great words. Yeah, well, thank you, you know this industry. We need to get you more involved. <laughs> oh, uh, my God. I got to tell you, what the heck is taking us so long? So, look, uh, let me start out this. CEO, American Wind uh, Energy Association, Tom. Neil, I'm telling you, you and I could be brother and sister from another mother. <laughs> Um, because here's what we do. We look at our life. Our life gives us a path. Then we get a passion and then we think, oh my God, I can't do that job anymore. I got to go for what I believe in. Here's my question for both of you. Here we are today. I want to ask each of you, and I guess I'll start with you, Neil, and then pop up to Tom. Um, given where you are today, Going back to the moment where you thought, I'm going to leave my job and do this, what excites you most about being here now, Neil? Oh, being here, living in the now, and, and just spreading the good word about wind energy is it's my duty. Um, mm. I, I graduated uh, from college in, in 07 and immediately got into uh, building wind farms, and I loved it. I, it was just like invigorating. I thought I was building the future. And then I became a technician. And being a technician was just in my nature. I, I love to, to tinker with things and fix things. But I outgrew something. I knew I was built for something bigger. And that's when I started to build a community of technicians yep. around the world. And um, I had a, a aha moment. One day, coming in to work, I saw the, the FAA lights, the red lights flashing on the farm, and I, and I just I heard it in my head. It said, you're not supposed to be here anymore. you got a bigger calling. And, and so I went for it. I quit that day, actually. And uh, three years later, here I am sitting here talking to you. Absolutely. <clears throat> and the reason I love this conversation is, you know, when we get faced with what we should say, let's just say our calling. It's very difficult not to make the leap, but yet it also is difficult. Tom, I got to ask you, thanks, Neil. I got to ask you this. Look, American Wind Energy Association, American Wind Energy Association. This is not Star Trek. 
this is for real. For you, Tom, what is it that's firing you up most today? Well, like Neil, I'm in this for the mission. Mm. It's creating clean, affordable electricity for Americans. And I am uh, concerned about the climate crisis, so I like the idea that we're producing clean energy. And what's been really exciting in the last couple of years, we're now the cheapest source of electricity out there. So not only are we creating clean electricity, we're also reducing consumers' electric bills. And that's, that's a good mission. That's, that's a great thing. And with COVID, we're also finding in, in the economic reception and people out of jobs, we're also hiring in the wind industry. So it's great here this week, American Wind Week, where we're celebrating all of these successes of the wind industry and trying to get the word out. Wind energy is affordable, it's reliable, and guess what? You can get a good job here. And so we want people to go to AmericanWindWeek.org and start looking for jobs. And yeah, I'm excited to be talking with you about that because, you know, for the most part, it is an industry that's growing. But one of the things I'm really struck by, and I can't remember, I think it was Neil when I was reading about, you know, the naming of the company and the naming of your passion, so to speak. You know, you're the uh, CEO and owner of the tower climbing grease monkeys. And I got to tell you this, I related to it immediately. I come from a family of mechanics. And by age eight, all of us three sisters uh, would go to school with grease under our fingernails, and nobody would understand how that happened. They actually thought my parents weren't taking care of us. But no, we were building things with my dad. We were changing spark plugs. And so I'm thinking to myself, I need a field trip. But how about you? Don't you see? I want to ask you this. Because the cost of this has dropped significantly, I can only imagine what the future would be like. What do you see the future like, Neil? Well, I've got a six-year-old daughter, and... um, she goes out to the shop and wrenches with her dad, too, and she's been to multiple <laughs> wind farms already. And yeah. uh, she's already saying, I want to climb up there. Yep. So, um, you know, field trips are definitely in order uh, for sure. But for the future, as far as wind energy goes, I think exponential growth. we got uh, offshore booming. Um, we know that there's going to be at least another 80,000 jobs in the next decade. And we're going to have consistent power with these trade winds. Mm. And it's going to be pumping right into these big cities, New York City, all of that. Imagine that, New York City being powered by wind energy. Like, that's going to happen. Like you said, this is not Star Trek. This is reality. Yeah. And it's, it's happening. And, you know, you said it earlier, too. Like, why is it taking us so long? Well, you know, some people think it's a left idea. Some people think, I don't know, right idea. It's just a good idea. And we need to keep pushing, and so we are. So that's what Tom and I are here to do, is just talk about the men and women that are pushing this thing forward. And a lot of these guys, they're conservative. I mean, they, work, they live in Texas. Yeah, I know. They love power, man. Yeah. They love energy. They're, they're grease monkeys, man. They love to get their hands in on things and, and, and wrench on things. I mean, they're electricians. They work on hydraulics. They... They, uh, they climb towers. They know how to rescue themselves, like ropes and rigging and uh, huge cranes. It's, 
these guys are really skilled. And uh, unfortunately, some of these other industries are cherry picking them from the wind industry. So we got to keep training them and pushing them out. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And, you know, I know they've given me a really short window to talk to you both. But this is something that's near and dear to my heart, passionate to me for a lot of reasons. And I want to just hop up and just get some information, Tom, from you about this. You know, we talked about the job creation. And to be honest with you, when I did my estimate, uh, the first talk I ever did on this was Fifty Shades of Green. And I got booed because (laughs) back then when you talked about any other shade of green but bright green, they thought you were compromising. But I still kept that going. But here's the thing I want to ask you. This is a multi-billion, at least multi-billion dollar, let's just call it enterprise, meaning jobs, meaning energy, meaning longevity. What is it in this for you when you think about this, Tom? What is it that you see that will surpass all of our greatest dreams? What do you see happening here? Well, let me build off of your point on this being a big business. We invest over $10 billion every year Mm. in building these wind farms. Last year, it was $14 billion. So first point is it's big business and it's growing. But the best part of it is being big business and growing, it's good for America. We're creating jobs. We're creating clean energy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love the fact that it's good for us, and at this time of, of unemployment and recession, Lenny, we're the way forward. Linda, I do think ultimately we're going to be, uh, by 2030, a majority of renewables. When you take wind energy, add solar, add hydropower, and some batteries, yeah. we could be well, well over a majority of the grid. So a majority of the electricity we produce in 10 years would be carbon-free, would be renewable. That's an exciting vision, but it's going to be reality in about 10 years. So that's that's a future that's good for all of us. Um, I know you guys have to pop off here in a minute, but I want to ask you each a question about the future. And, and I want to go out there for a minute because – when I, think, when I thought about this many years back and did that Fifty Shades of Green talk, when I thought about that, I, I, I wasn't quite sure if we would even be where we are today. And I want to ask you, there's so much more that we can do and do with technology. I mean, I think about what happened to Puerto Rico, and I think about, you know, what the solution in Puerto Rico might be. I mean, many people still don't know how devastating you know, Puerto Rico was from being hit with hurricane. But we are in that world now. Yesterday, the Weather Channel, if I could say, announced that this is going to be the worst hurricane year ever. So let's put on our our visionary hats. How will this industry change from innovation? Uh, Who wants to go first? Tom, you want to go? Neil, who wants to go first? I'll I'll jump in with a quick comment. Uh, First thing, we're a pretty young industry, actually. So we are still innovating a lot. We're still figuring out how to make the blades, whether it's longer, use software to better manage the turbines. We're also now deploying wind farms offshore. So not only are we onshore in in ranches and, and farms, but we're now offshore, mostly off the East Coast. And what's exciting about that is, There are really strong winds, steady winds off the East Coast, and we'll be able to produce 
wind energy, and then just move it by cables into New York City and Boston and Washington, D.C., along the East Coast. So the future of wind is great, especially with that offshore, and we'll be creating lots of new jobs in the coming decade for that as well. So that's part of what the future will hold for us, and it's all good. Mm. Uh, and I, I love the idea of offshore because I remember that being one of the greatest challenges when I was doing these talks, but also was one of the greatest uh, innovations. Uh, but, you know, this idea is an idea that we need to implement like yesterday. Um, uh, Neil, did, did, what do you have to say? I think uh, I think what the biggest challenge is right now is there's a there's an older generation resistant to change. Um, they think that that's where we have to get our power from mm-hmm. these other sources. But as Tom said, I mean, we've got massive potential. Um, mm-hmm. These these engineers are literally building floating wind turbines. Yep. We don't have the we don't have the uh, the seas of you know the UK, right? I mean, they're they're building farms in 13 meters of water. <laughs> what, yeah. what we're doing is building yeah. them off of a uh, a coastal shelf, and they're floating. Mm. That's amazing. And what we're doing in wind energy is progressing humanity forward. I don't think people realize that we are testing the boundaries of fiberglass and metal and what we can do to it. We have to fight with Mother Nature, but what we do is we embrace Mother Nature and we allow it to power our future. That's what we're doing. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing that that thing that can be so absolutely powerful in the face of what it can can remind us of with our humanity can also be the solution for the opportunities of our future. I want to thank you both for joining me here today. Last question, please give us the websites and I'd love to know your personal message from each of you. Tom? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I would encourage everybody to go to AmericanWindWeek.org. That's AmericanWindWeek.org. What we're celebrating this year, you can learn more about the industry. You can get involved. And if you're looking for work, that's a good starting Mm -hmm. place for finding a job in the wind industry. And my message, especially in this time of COVID, people are a little down. People can get depressed and you may be stuck at home or not feeling well. There's good news. And the good news starts with wind energy. Thank you. Neil, how about you? I just want to encourage the generation coming up that they have they have an avenue for them to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's going to build their skill sets, and it doesn't even require that much schooling. Uh, we're literally hiring people off the streets and teaching them yeah. how to construct wind farms, and then they can go in and get trained by OEMs how to maintain them mm. and, and troubleshoot mm. them. Uh, what other industry is doing that? We're building infrastructure right now, and I just want to encourage the next generation, if they're listening, to, to look into it. Um, if you want, I know this is a, a social um, society now, go check out our website or go check out our Facebook, our Instagram, Tower Climbing Grease Monkeys. You'll see some amazing photos, and they'll inspire you. And for the older generation, I just say, you know, maybe pour out some of that water that you got in the cup already and maybe add some more into it. There's some real facts out there, and you can check them out on a WIA's website.
Yeah, I love it. Thank you both so much for taking the time. And thank you for educating us. And I hope you'll come back when we can talk about how this is like a name, wind, power. We say it like we're breathing. Thank you both for joining me here today. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. It's so great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. So you've always heard me talk about ancestry. And you've heard me talk about how I discovered through ancestry that I actually had relatives uh, in South America and I had a grandfather's brother. And in our family, we didn't know anything about that. But what's the next level for ancestry? What is the next level? And I'm very excited with all of you to announce what the next level is. It is this, ancestry health. And it's powered by next generation sequencing, which you're going to hear about today from Dr. Sarah South. So how do we empower each other? How do we empower ourselves to take greater control of our health? If you're me and you got that mystery disease back in 2004, this conversation, I'm telling you, would have been very important. Uh, Dr. South, it's so great to have you here. Thank you. And it's so great to hear your story and to know that uh, Ancestry has already played a significant role in helping you know more about yourself. That's awesome. Oh, you have no idea. Uh, and, you know, we could do a whole nother show on what I discovered about my um, Ancestry. But this next level for you and for you all, I should say, this idea of taking greater control of of our health, I had to get deadly sick to figure that out. Tell us about, from your perspective, why this became a priority for you all and what next generation sequencing is. Yeah, so great questions. I think this is a priority because we want to be in a more proactive and preventative state with our health rather than a reactive state. Mm. And I think genetics can play such a role there when it comes to being proactive about our health because it can identify risks that exist before clinical symptoms present. Sometimes if you wait until you have clinical symptoms, there may be already some damage done that's hard to reverse. But if you know about risk before any damage, then you can do things screenings to identify things early or even things that are preventative along the lines of diet and modification um, or other medications. And so that's why I think it's really important to not just use DNA as a way to understand your origins, Mm -hmm. um, which is great, but I think there's also power there and which is why we're really excited to bring Ancestry Health to the market so that we can identify uh, inherited risk factors and then uh, enable those customers within the healthcare system to take action um, and do things in a proactive way. You know, we are learning, in my opinion now, not yours, but in my opinion, we are learning about health in real time. What I think we're not learning about, and the new T-cell research that's coming out is going to really talk to this, we're not talking about how we can strengthen ourselves, how we can strengthen our body. And sometimes even if you strengthen your body and you strengthen your brain, you also strengthen your mind. And this is something that is so important. But if you don't know what you don't know about yourself, then it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard blindfolded. 
And so let's talk about what this revelation and this new information for people will provide them with. Yeah, so that's a, a great uh, way to set it up and to think about it, which is that, you know, it's imp- knowledge is power. Knowledge is empowering. And that's what we wanted to focus on is we wanted to talk about uh, conditions in which it's actionable. So, again, we want to be really powered by both a really comprehensive technology, which is what next generation sequencing is. It's just a comprehensive way to look at your DNA. We needed to marry that with the um the best of the the science behind the role that genetics plays in health. So we have focused on a set of conditions in which there's a strong genetic component. Now, it's not completely genetics, but there's a strong genetic component and that there's something that can be done if you know about the risk. So it could be, for example, an increased risk for cardiomyopathy. That may feel a little scary, but again, if you knew about it, Um, then you could talk to your physician about, you know, would a simple echocardiogram, uh, not something that would standardly be ordered, but could be ordered if you knew about the risk to identify, is there, are there any structural things to be worried about with your heart? And then are there things that you can do to strengthen the heart and to reduce the risk? And the answer to all that is yes, but you've got to know about the risk beforehand. Yeah. And, you know, look, you have spent your life. I mean, I was reading a little bit about you, uh, Dr. South. I was reading a little bit about you and I thought, wow, this is a woman that has been so immersed in this field for such a long time, you know, and study and focused and, you know, your passion about it. Can I ask you this question, especially as it relates to ancestry? How far, in your opinion, how far have we come since the first day that we all saw that first commercial on television about ancestry? How far have we now come to advance the science of what you're talking about? So uh, I've been passionate about genetics my whole life. So um, (laughs) even just as a a high school student, um, I thought, you know what, this is – this is the most interesting thing to me because, you know, DNA is the building blocks of then how you put a body together and how you understand how it's going to work. And so I always knew that I would have a career uh, in genetics and I particularly wanted the the career to be the intersection of genetics and medicine because I felt like that's where, again, things can be proactive and preventative. Um, And how far we've come is just amazing to me. So when I first started to get into this from the more clinical angle, we could just ask really um, very focused questions, you know, and, and again, this will continue to evolve. So I don't want to make it sound like we've arrived. It's always no, going to no. continue to evolve. But that's what's exciting about it is the pace of discovery. Um, and then what I've also seen is just dr- a dramatic change in the access. So um, it, the cost of the technologies has, right. we're talking about you know, not just a tenfold difference in the cost, but we're talking like a hundredfold difference in the cost of these technologies so that now it is something that we can talk about for the general population and not just the select individual who's already sick, who's already presenting to their doctor. But we can think about it in terms of, because not only do you need the, the knowledge to say that this can be proactive and preventative, but you need the access. And a part of mm-hmm. the access is also then the affordability. And that's really where next generation sequencing comes into play. It's just so much more affordable than any previous technology. 
You know, I want to ask you something. You know, somebody like me who has gone down the path of being really, really sick, I mean, and and learning how to understand the layers of what you're talking about. And here's what I mean by that. The layers are, well, wait a minute. Yes, this is the symptom of illness you have. But, man, we've got to strengthen your adrenals. Boy, we've got to do this with this. Boy, we've got to do this with your bladder. Boy, we've got like that, right? And so my question to you is, uh, having lost one of the members of our group two days ago um, from the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and it happened really quickly. And the reason I'm bringing it up is, you know, we all wondered what was his system? What was, how strong was his system to go that quickly and go that fast? Now, I want to be very yeah. clear. We are not talking about this being a test for COVID-19. We're talking about how to strengthen and empower ourselves and our body to build up some sort of protection, correct? Yeah, we're talking about um, things that you can do, not only if you do have a genetic risk, but even if we did not find a genetic risk. So Mm -hmm. the information is useful from both directions. Now, there may be different things that you do, right? If if you have an increased risk because of genetics, there may be more aggressive things that you do. But you're absolutely right that um, even if you do not have an underlying genetic factor, there are mm-hmm. environmental things. There are things about your nutrition, about your you know general state of health that you can improve upon. Um, and then there are regular screenings that um, are already – you know, your physician will already say, you know, when was the last time your cholesterol was checked? When, you know, mm. have we looked at your thyroid levels? Those are all really important, too, and are also emphasized within this product. Wow. Can you please, I know we're going to run out of time here. Can you tell folks how they, uh, first of all, let me ask you, are are these kits available for people now? Yes. So you can go to Ancestry.com slash health. If you're a current Ancestry DNA customer, we may already have stored DNA that you consented to um, from your previous interactions. We can mm-hmm. use that sample with this new technology. Um, or if you're a new customer, then we just ship you a saliva collection device. It's as easy as spitting in a tube and shipping mm-hmm. it back. Um, through the Ancestry.com slash health site, you would activate what we when we say the word activate we just mean you're just going online you're answering mm-hmm. a couple simple questions about your health um, and that's because there's a physician on the the other side of this that's reviewing those and making sure that this is an appropriate test for you and then mm-hmm. um, you receive your results through you'll get an email that notifies you just to log into your secure account you'll learn about the uh, what was found in your DNA um, and you'll learn about the next steps and included in this uh, in this product is access to um, information at the level that you want it. So again, there may be somebody who just can read the information there. They've got it. They're good. They understand what they need to do next. There may be somebody okay. else who says, I need a little bit more information. There's webinars. There's even, for those who have significant risk identified, an ability to do one-on-one chatting with a genetic counselor a healthcare wow. provider who's specialized in helping you understand and know next steps. 
Wow. And, you know, look, I know we've got a couple of minutes left, but one of the areas that I'm familiar with around this is in the, um, how should I say, it, the advancement of solutions for cancer. And I think that's probably one of the first times we've talked about genetic connection. But this does this also help assess that as well? Yes. So a couple of the conditions that are part of this uh, offering um, are an increased risk for inherited breast cancer and colon uh -huh. cancer. So those are, mm -hmm. again, not all, not all uh, breast cancer and not all colon cancer comes from inherited right. risk, but there yes. is a significant percentage that does, enough that it is worth knowing about. Now, again, doesn't if this test doesn't find a risk, it doesn't mean you're out of the woods right. and you never have to worry about it, but it does mean that um, if this test does find a risk, you'll know mm -hmm. that those mammograms, those colonoscopies are even more critical for you, um, and uh, you'll be empowered to... Uh, to be preventative with those conditions. You know, Dr. South, I want to thank you so much. I know you've got to run. Last question, uh, please provide the website again. I'd love to know your personal message. Thanks. Uh, the website is ancestry.com slash health. And uh, for me personally, this is all about empowerment. This is all about uh, understanding and then taking action. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. South. Thank you all for, first of all, thank you for doing what you're doing. And for all of you out there, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. What a great segment I've got for you. Look, this is something that I find interesting, and I'm glad. Dr. Danae Simpson is joining us here today, transplant surgeon, assistant professor of surgery in the Division of Organ Transplantation at Northwestern Medicine. Our friends at Northwestern Medicine are back to talk with us. I, I just love these segments we're doing with them. Uh, Dr. Simpson, thank you for today. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, this this maybe you can, I, I, first of all, let me say, I love that you're bringing this message out there to answer questions, but also to ask questions. This is what I love about this particular segment. Mm -hmm. um, we have recently, if I might, we have recently saw, watched, number one, number two, television series shows with this topic. And people have talked more about this topic than before. And as a matter of fact, I have a friend of mine, after watching one of those shows, literally say, I'm going to change my status. But there's mm -hmm. much more to this. There's much more. Um, I want to ask you, Dr. Simpson, for you as a surgeon, what ignites your spirit most about what you do? Oh, you know, I think it's, it's there's a number of things. I mean, obviously, I'm uh, a technical person. So being in the operating room really gives me great joy. Um, and I, there's nothing better than the instant gratification of watching the blood flow be restored to a brand new organ and knowing what that's going to provide to a patient and watching that organ kick into life and actually perform for you right in front of your eyes. It was once cold and lifeless. 
If it's a kidney, you watch it make urine on the table. If it's a liver, you watch it make bile. It's remarkable, mm-hmm. and it just never ceases to me- amaze me every single time we do it. So the technical aspect of it really gives me joy. But there's also kind of more of the human aspect. And um, yeah. transplant surgery is one area of surgery where you have much more of a relationship with your patients than you do in other aspects of surgery. So take, for example, um, trauma surgery, um, which is a fantastic field, a very needed field. Um, but it's, it's, you develop a different relationship with your patients in that setting um, where it's really, you know, you don't have this relationship building leading up to the transplant and then after, um, you know, the transplant, that you don't have that in, in trauma or in, in many other aspects of surgery. So, um, you know, as we evaluate patients for, for transplant, I get to see them come in as um, really sick and desperate individuals. And then I have yeah. the pleasure of seeing them on the other side where they can really um, come, you know, back to things in life that they never thought would be possible. Um, patients can go back to work. They can go back to exercising. They can re-engage in, you know, so many aspects of daily living that they couldn't before. And that is really so gratifying and makes it so worth it. Um, so that's the other aspect of, of really what bring, wakes me up every morning, gets me out of bed. You know, one of the things that you know, I, I don't really talk about this very much, but when I do to the people that are close to me, I always get asked, you know, Pat, you, you're an organ donor. Why did you do that? And my answer is very simple. Um, for me, I watched one of my family members uh, for the audience, a person of color, African-American mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. and I watched what they went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I watched how different it was for them than mm-hmm. it was for others. And mm-hmm. so for me, they told me I could not identify where my organs went, <laughs> but I could do it. And so for me, it became mm-hmm. personal. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, you have created, or shall I say, um, you are somebody that you're the founding director of the Northwestern Medicine African American Transplant Access Program. Mm-hmm. And I saw that and I thought, when I said yes to this, it didn't exist. Tell us about the benefits of this. Tell us about what you're seeing. And many people like me may not even know the risks of 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 organ donation just give us your lowdown as to where we are today because it's very different when i decided to do this like super different sure sure um well i mean as we know organ donation the, the goal is is to to help somebody who needs a transplant um who's facing essentially death um if they don't get the transplant um to have a second lease on life and um, one thing a lot of people are not aware of is that minorities actually make up the majority on the transplant list for, for several organs. Um, so take, for example, kidneys. Kidney disease is um, the ninth leading cause of death in the United States. A lot of people don't know that. Kidney disease is kind of a silent killer. Um, you know, people can't really look at you and tell, like, if you have kidney disease or not. And so right. in that sense, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And um, so it affects 30 million Americans. And even though African-Americans represent 13% of the U.S. population, 
we represent more than 30% of those who have kidney disease. We're four times more likely to develop kidney disease than white Americans for a number of reasons. Um, but, you know, diabetes and high uh, blood pressure are the number one and two causes of kidney disease, and that's much more prevalent in the black community. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yet, despite that, um, and despite that increased burden of disease in the black community, um, African-Americans are less likely to be referred to specialists. They're less likely to um, be referred for a transplant as an option. They're more likely to sit on dialysis. Um, and therefore, um, you know, it, it, there's a big disparity there. I think there's a, a, a misunderstanding that um, transplant and dialysis are equal, and they are not. Um, right. Getting transplanted offers a, uh, a survival advantage. And, um, and so it's very, very important to get that message out to the black community. Um, while we it's really at- it's very very important if I might say it's very yeah. important if I could just interject about this because this is exactly what I experienced and mm-hmm. with with family and I have to say this I'm so thrilled you're doing this because we didn't even know what we didn't know about what to ask right 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 yeah mm-hmm. and I think you're yeah. addressing that. I think what you've done is created a way, not just for people to get information, uh, Dr. Simpson, but this is scary for people. And if you are part of the black community, not only is it scary, but sometimes you think this is never going to happen to me. I'm never going to get it. So isn't this also part of an educational system to help people understand there are questions you can ask. There's help on the way. Absolutely. Um, That is a major pillar of the program is education. There's a lot of fear um, in the community. There's a lot of misinformation in the community. There's a lot of distrust in the community. And so one of the major, major features of this program is to try to kind of reset that to help educate patients and help make them better advocates for themselves, to empower our patients to know the right questions to ask, as you say. Um, you know, a lot of times I mean, we see how doctor's visits are, are structured these days. You're in and you're out. If you don't know the right question to ask, I mean, your time is gone. And so education is so key so that patients know what options are out there, what are the right questions to ask, what um, is true and what's not true about all the rumors that circulate out there about being a donor, about getting a transplant and so on and so forth. Well, you know, first of all, I know we are going to have to end this rather quickly. Uh, these interviews are really short. I've got a million questions for you, but mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to ask you, how do we give information to people? How do they find out more? And then my last question is, what's on the top three things of your list? If you had sort of like a magic lamp or something in front of you, and you had the lamp and you're rubbing it, and somebody popped out and say, "Hey, Dr. Simpson, you could have this," what would they be? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, that's, that's a tough question to answer on the spot. (laughs) I would say that, um, you know, just equity, equity is the number Mm -hmm. one thing we need equity, need equity and resources and access, um, you know, to, to these life-saving procedures. Um, we need more organs, you know, there's not enough to go around, so many people mm-hmm. are waiting on the list and waiting for that second chance in life, and many will not get to that opportunity, sadly, because we just don't have enough to go around. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are the top two things. But equity is, is the main thing. I mean, it's we got to somehow make the system more fair 
for individuals out there who are suffering. Um, they need to have better access to specialty care. They need to be treated with respect. Um, they need to be educated and, you know, offered resources at the same rate as others. Um, in terms of, you know, the organ pool, as we say, um, we need to, as a community and as a society as a whole, we need to come forward, you know, and, and check that box on our driver's licenses. Um, you know, the minority communities are fearful of, of being uh, organ donors. There's a lot of misinformation there. Mm -hmm. And so where I often direct people um, is to donatelife.net. Um, it's an excellent website um, that offers a lot of information about becoming an organ donor. It, it, it busts a lot of the myths out there that people have um, that make them fearful. The more donors we have, the more people that will be helped. And so this is a particularly important for the minority community because even though we don't race match organs, okay, it, it's not important for minorities to become donors because their organs will necessarily go to minorities. Right. It goes to everybody. But if we help, we help ourselves out by increasing the pool. And so that's what's, that's the important message there, I think, is, is, is that we just need to know that if we all pitch in, it'll be better for everybody. Dr. Simpson, thank you for helping humanity. Thank, thank you, you so, so much very for much me. for everything you're doing. Uh, folks out there, please go ahead and find out more information. Dr. Simpson is doing a number of these interviews, but you can go to the website and you can take action. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Now, look, you have heard me, as well as Claudette Rowley, talk about culture, a new paradigm for culture. We talked about it for cultures of organizations. We talked about it for cultures of groups and nonprofits and teams. But what about our education? What about what's going on in the cultural transformation we are seeing now. Who's taking that on? Who's looking at what we can do? Let me just say this. Who's looking at the possibilities, right? Because you know you have them. Well, here it is. Joining me here today, Ron Berger, Chief Academic Officer, L Education, is looking at this from a new lens. And in the world we live in, as Dr. Vick would say, it is a new paradigm. It is a new energy paradigm around education, around school, around culture, around knowing what to do and how to do it. Ron, it's great to have you. Dr. Pat, thank you for hosting me. I'm really happy to be here. You know what? Um, uh, short and sweet, I'll give it to you. The people that I've mentioned, the three of us, uh, my work before this was in organizations and specifically fo focusing on culture. Um, Claudette wrote a, a brand new book, Cultural Brilliance. It's a fabulous book. Uh, but now here you are. You've taken this on. There's a new book. We are, I mean, come on. Finally, finally a book that sees through the lens of how to be and help in our academic systems. Uh, what is it about you, your life, that literally triggered this book, We Are Crew, a teamwork approach? What is it that got to you to say, wow, man, I gotta do something? Well, I am lucky, um, Dr. Pat. I work <laughs> with this national nonprofit, uh, EL Education. We work with schools all over the country. And before that, I was a public school teacher myself for 28 years. 
and I lit in a small town with low-income uh, students, uh, rural students, and what I found was that there's no quick fix to schools, as you know. It's all about the school culture. And if the school culture is a place where every kid feels valued and every kid feels like she belongs and people believe in her, they're going to thrive. And if it's not that way, they won't thrive. So there's no quick fix to education. There's no one thing that's going to make schools better or worse. It's about building school cultures where it, it brings out the best in people. And so the organization I work with supports schools and districts mm -hmm. across the country. How do you intentionally think about building school cultures where everyone feels valued and everyone feels pushed to be their best self? Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I've known about your organization for a long time, but we never called it EL. So I just got schooled on that. We thought L-Ed was like the coolest thing to say. Thank you for coming. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I got to call my I got to call my peeps and say, oh, my gosh, we have got that so wrong. Um, but part of this is it doesn't matter what you call it. What we need to call it is an, an, a, new, a new realm of possibilities because what you're doing and what your organization has been doing is looking at unleashing potential. And that to me, you know, is most important. I got to tell you, th this thing is so important to me. I'm one of those people that had I not had uh, in the classroom teachers that saw something in me, Ron, at a very young age, I wouldn't have graduated high school. I wouldn't be here. But what is it that you're seeing that could unleash this potential? And how does the, how does your, the, 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 how do the book, how does the new book help people understand the significance of this? Well, and great question, Dr. Pat. So, you know, there's a whole new area of brain science that's making clear the scientific evidence for what you know, what all of your listeners, I think, intuitively already know, which is that if you send your kids to school and, the, and your kids do not feel safe, emotionally and physically safe mm -hmm. there, the, if they don't feel they belong, if they don't feel respected and valued, they're not going to do well academically. And I think Brain science makes it absolutely clear mm -hmm. why that's happening, why certain parts of your brain shut down right. and you can't learn. But I don't think parents even need the brain science because we always knew that. We always knew that if our kids went to a school that didn't really embrace them fully and, and believe in them fully, as you said, they're not going to thrive academically. So this book and all of our online free resources and our videos that accompany it – are trying to support schools to think, how can we work together to build cultures where every kid, no matter what their racial background, their cultural background, their, their constellation of strengths and weaknesses, every kid should feel like this is a place that they believe in me. They believe I can do great things. Um, that's the focus of the book is like, how do we build those cultures, as you say, that make every kid bring out the best and every kid feels like they, every kid feels like she or he or they are in a place that believes in them. And I think that, you know, what you're doing and coming out here, and I don't think our listeners, they've heard me talk about this. When you all come out here, Ron, when you come out here and you do these interviews, you are booked pretty much for a day, interview after interview after interview. And, and for me, I want to make sure people understand that these interviews and your passion and commitment for what you do is because you can see results that are different. So let's talk about the results that you see happening uh, 
when we look at a teamwork approach to school culture, how do results change? Let's call it outcomes. How do outcomes change? Thank you. Yeah, That's well, better. I'll talk national outcomes for a moment, <laughs> and then I'll just make it personal at the very end. Yep. Nationally, what we have found is that when we have schools where every kid feels like they fully belong, like they're valued, their voice is, is valued there, their, their courage and their attempts to be great academically are really valued and people believe in them, the academic results in the schools and districts we work with are terrific. And so nationally, we see this pattern of good test scores, good graduation rates, good college acceptances. But I'll also make it personal, Dr. Pat, to say, in the small town where I live, I taught pretty much every student in the town for 25 years. And so everyone in my town is my former student. So, and that includes my nurse and the volunteer fire department and the, the, the part-time police person in our town. And so I not only see them succeeding, I see them being good human beings, good citizens. Like when you're a part of a teamwork approach, when you're a part of being a good citizen to treating others respectfully and compassionately. Those are the people that are the first responders in my town and they're the people that I trust with my life. And so it's not just academic results we're seeing, but we're seeing people becoming good citizens, good human beings by taking on more about this is not just about you, it's about being part of a team where you look out for others. Um, this is really for us in the world today. Um, this is a new importance, let me call it. What I mean by that is we not only have to think out of the box right now, but we have to annihilate the box, just to be honest with you. I mean, we're having to do it as a broadcast network. You know, uh, I own a broadcast network with 10 channels. We've had to say there is no box. You, did you watch The Matrix? Where he's like, yeah. oh, there is no spoon. And I think for me, when I think about that, I think that's the approach you're taking. You're saying, yes, this is school, but these are people. Exactly right. And, and they, they have potential that is way more than we imagine. Every parent thinks, yeah, my kid has great potential. I hope it'll be recognized in school. But that, they shouldn't have to hope that. Like Every school should be a place where the genius in every kid is discovered and encouraged. Exactly right. Like There's tremendous potential in every kid that we haven't tapped into. And I think we can give kids much more voice in that. I mean, the whole point of this We Are Crew is elevate student voices to yeah. work together. Okay, so I've got to ask you this. I always love doing this. Um, you know, you'll appreciate this. Uh, in, in educational language, I'm considered learning different. You know that term? Yes, learning different? absolutely so. Okay, yeah. we, we never recall that growing up. I mean, that, that's a very kind term for, for what a lot of us uh, got labeled as. But even being learning different along the way, there were some things in what I could do that were really different and special. What are your top three? If you had to pick top three from everything in your book, if you had to pick the top three and you had a magic wand today, what would be the first top three things you would like to see done differently? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's a fair question. So the first thing I would say is that when we think about the social emotional growth of kids, the first thing I would say is that should be a focus all day long, not in a Tuesday afternoon session where you talk about social and emotional skills, but the way school happens should be um, 
building the skills of kids to be respectful, to be responsible, to be compassionate to each other. That's the way the the entry to the school should be. That's the way the cafeteria should feel. Mm. That's the way math class should feel. It should be the focus all day long that we treat each other well here and we work as a team all day long. So it's a, it's a true shift from social and emotional skills being a discrete thing that's only done at a certain time to the culture of the whole school all the time. Another thing is I think we need to have more courageous and honest conversations about who we really are, what mm. our strengths, what our weaknesses are, what our identities are. Because many people are different learners and feel like this school just doesn't recognize who I am. People come from backgrounds racially or culturally or language-wise, or they have different physical challenges where they feel like I don't fit in here. If we can't talk about those things in school, there's no chance that we can make kids understand how to, uh, how to be compassionate to each other. So we have to have more courageous conversations among staff and kids around that. And the last thing I would say is kids need more ownership of their learning. Like kids should feel mm -hmm. like I understand where we're trying to go and I can use a lot of my creativity to get there. I'm not, not just here to be obedient. I, I understand our academic goals and I can take some real initiative in getting there myself. Wow. In, you know, one of the things, Ron, I wanted to ask you in the last minute or so we have left, um, what gets you fired up every day? You know, what is it about yeah. this project, the book, what you're doing? What really just ignites your flame? Well, I have, I mean, until the pandemic hit, I had the incredible gift, uh, Dr. Pat, of being able to go into schools and sit in on what we call crew meetings, which are mm -hmm. morning advisory meetings in our schools. And the meetings are often run by the kids themselves, like a dozen high school kids sitting in a city classroom having courageous conversations about their lives and crying together and supporting, pushing each other and supporting each other. And those are so emotional for me. Like they're so powerful to see kids taking risks to be real with each other. Because when I was in high school, I'll just say, honestly, my home life was really tough. I never shared a thing about it in school. Like I just kept my mouth shut the entire time I was in high school about what my real life was. Yeah, and me here too. Are kids yeah, here are kids sitting in a group and sharing the pains of their homes and supporting each yeah. other. I think what a beautiful thing. What a therapeutic thing for yeah. those kids. We now know the power of stories. We now know this. And to build a culture where we can foster the kind of communication that only Stephen Covey pretty much laid out for us in The Seven Habits is really the key. Because I think, like you, Ron, I think the mistakes we make are that we don't think that these kids can handle it and they can. Right. Thank you so much for today. Please give out the website. Yes. So the, our website where all our materials are free and open source is eleducation.org. The letter E, the letter L, and then education.org. And we hope, I hope your listeners can find things of value to them there that they can just download and use. I have to tell you, there's more on this website. If folks have not gone to this website, uh, please go. Please go to what this initiative is about. There are more solutions there than I believe you're going to have questions for. Ron, thank you for a great job. Dr. Pett, thank you for hosting me and for hosting your show. You bet. All right, everybody, let's take a short break. Again, again, this is the future. Please see what you can do. We'll be right back. <music>